Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew, and this is in chapter 8, beginning at verse 5, and if you want to know where to find that in your pew Bible or your chair Bible, as the case is, it is on page 813. So hear the word of God, beginning in chapter 8 of Matthew at verse 5. When he, and that is Jesus, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place... There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Well, we've just read this wonderful passage about a great faith, and a great Savior. And because we see such strong faith in this passage, so strong that in fact our Lord comments on the faith of this centurion, we first need to ask a question. And that question is this, what is the nature of it? What is the nature of faith? Now we understand that faith is more than just believing in the reality of something. Jesus reminds, uh, James reminds us in the second chapter of his epistle, and you're familiar, very familiar with this verse, even the demons believe and shudder. James is reminding us that demons certainly believe in the reality of God, but they don't trust him as their Lord and Savior. True faith, true saving faith, certainly begins with believing in reality, but it goes further. It is trusting in and relying upon that reality. Now, from what I can tell, each one of you are sitting on your chair and you are trusting in that chair to hold you up. And it seems to be doing so quite well. You have 
given yourself, the weight of yourself to that chair, and it is holding you up. And that is what it is when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. But we need to remember as we talk about the nature of faith that true and saving faith is not something that is innate. In other words, we are not born with it. It is not something that we can conjure up by choosing to do so. Perhaps you didn't realize it at the time, but we were beginning already to cover such things in our confession of sin this morning. There in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 1, this is what we confessed. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Notice that Paul does not say that we were sick in our trespasses and sins, which would give the indication that, yes, we were in a very bad way, but we could still muster up strength to get help, to call for help. Not at all. He tells us that we were dead. That is the way we enter the world. We are alive, we are born alive, but spiritually, Paul says, we are dead. We may not like to think about it that way. We might not even agree with it, but we've got to agree with it and think that way because it's what the Scripture tells us, and this is our authority as to what we are to believe and how we are to live. So Paul says that we were dead. And let me just ask you again, or as we continue to think about the nature of faith, what can a dead man do? What can a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. He cannot see, he cannot hear, he cannot move, he cannot respond. The only way that a dead man can respond and move and hear and see is for him to be made alive again. That, of course, is exactly what happened to Jesus' friend, Lazarus. He could hear Jesus' command, Lazarus, come out, because he was given ears to hear, physical ears. He could respond to Jesus' command by moving out of the tomb because he had been made alive again. It was not something that Lazarus could muster up. He was dead. It was all a gift to him. And so it is with everyone who believes. Every man is as dead spiritually as Lazarus was dead physically. But if and when he receives new life spiritually, he can see, he can hear, he can respond, and he can remove, he can move toward the Savior spiritually like Lazarus did physically. It is all a gift. And so we need to remember those excellent words that Isaac Watts has penned. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. And I'm thinking right now about my good friend Dean Hall, a student at Mississippi State University, 
who became a believer there. In fact, I think I remember it happening as we were talking once in a, a chemistry lab after a small group Bible study. Just Dean and I were there, and I remember the tears. But the thing I'm really remembering is the time that we came to Independent Presbyterian Church many years ago. I brought some students up for the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. It was all about predestination. Dr. J.I. Packer was speaking that very night, and Dean was sitting to my left on the front row, and I heard him speaking, and he said, but Ford, why me? Why me? And that's what we all think, don't we? But we're so grateful. We're so grateful that the Lord has given us the gift of faith. Because if he had not, we would have been lost for all eternity. And so Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. It's all the Lord and all the glory goes to him. Do you have faith this morning? Have you put your faith and trust, not just in the chair in which you're sitting, but in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Then be assured that it is not something that you were born with or something that you can conjure up in any moment. It is all a gift. So I say to you, rejoice, dear brother and sister, in this gift if you have it. So the centurion, as we read about it in Matthew 8, had great faith, not because he was born with it, not because he could conjure it up, but because it had been given to him by the Lord. It was a gift to him. And so in the second place, we want to look at the portrait of this centurion's faith. In other words, the way in which it shows itself in the narrative in which we have, which we have just read. We see him asking Jesus for help for his servant who is paralyzed and, as he says, suffering terribly. And Jesus immediately says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion responds, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. After all, who is this centurion? And he's aware of this. Who is this centurion in comparison with the Lord Jesus. And furthermore, who is he to cause Jesus to commit an act contrary to the custom of his own people because Jews were not to enter the homes of Gentiles? You perhaps remember very clearly what the Apostle Peter is saying in Acts chapter 10 as he speaks. You yourselves know, he says, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Therefore, as far as the centurion was concerned, let Jesus not enter the house, but simply speak the word. In other words, simply speak the word of healing. 
And this is the way he reasons. If I, a military officer, must obey my superiors and those under me must obey me, then certainly this great one can command and whatever he desires will be done. After all, the centurion says to those under him, go and he goes. And he says, come, and he comes. And he says to his servant, do this, and he does it. So he reasons, Jesus can say, go, and the sickness will leave. And he can say, come, and health will arrive. Now notice the way Jesus responds. Let me just read that again. He marveled and said, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did he mean by these words? Well, he meant that people from everywhere across the world, from east, from west, from everywhere. Many people will come at the end, at that marriage feast of the Lamb, to share the blessings of salvation with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, <clears throat> with the patriarchs. And certainly Gentiles are included in that number. The symbolism uh, is of saved Jews and Gentiles alike. Now get this picture. Jews and Gentiles alike reclining together on couches at a table loaded with food, enjoying sweet fellowship with each other and with the host in a spacious banqueting hall flooded with light. Perhaps you know the name Coach Boo Ferris. Is that familiar with some of you? Boo Ferris was a wonderful pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, and then he became the coach of the baseball team at Delta State University for many years. And his widow, just on August 3rd, turned 100. He is with the Lord. But she told us about uh, some of the experiences he had as he lay on his bed, passing from this life to the next. One of those was this. He said to his wife, Miriam, who was that young man dressed in white kneeling at my bed? And she said, well, boo, I, I didn't see anybody. And he said, but, but he was there. And she had the presence of mind to say, well, I suppose that it was the Lord's messenger who came to let you know that everything was all right. Also, she told us that Boo loved to drink 7-Up. And he said to her, again, as he, I guess we would have to say, was on his deathbed, he said, all this food here. But you know, 7-Up wouldn't go with the food that is here. You have to wonder what he was seeing, don't you? Well, here is 
the Lord speaking about that sort of thing, this, this feast that is coming for the people of God. But Jesus says, on the other hand, the sons of the kingdom, that is the Jews, called sons of the kingdom because of the many kingdom privileges they had enjoyed, shall be cast into the most distant darkness that is far away from the banqueting hall. Thankfully, God is not finished with the Jews. We are still here. The world is still going on. He has his sheep among all peoples. And salvation has nothing to do with nationality or race, but with accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. But what are the results of this great faith as we're still looking at this portrait of this faith? Jesus says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. What is that showing us? The power of the word of God. He spoke it, and it was done. Well, I want us to think thirdly and finally about some lessons that we can derive from this passage. And the first lesson is this. Take to heart Jesus' compassion on your behalf and be assured of his willingness to help you. After all, what does Jesus say to the centurion? We, we get the impression that the centurion has simply stated that his servant is in this condition, and of course that is in a certain sense his asking Jesus for help, but he doesn't say that. Immediately, almost as if Jesus is cutting him off, he says, I will come and heal him. Think about these passages that show us something about the compassion of our Lord. This is Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. This is Matthew 15. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And you know this wonderful promise that the Lord Jesus speaks in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who Fear him. There's that old hymn. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained <clears throat> too deeply for mirth or song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. My heart is touched his heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares 
Did you get that one line? His heart is touched with my grief. That is speaking about you, my brother. That is speaking about you, my sister. And we must never forget that he had so much compassion for his own that he came to suffer and bleed and die in the place of his people. And so we sing also, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. You remember how the writer to the Hebrews speaks it in Hebrews chapter 4? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Some people would tell us who are over us, oh, get up, go on, you can deal with this, keep going. And here is the writer saying, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does anybody need this morning to draw with confidence near to the throne of grace because you need grace and mercy and help in time of need? You can do that. The Scripture tells you to do that. It encourages you to do that. In fact, it commands you to do that. And then, of course, Peter says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Lord willing, we will be singing at the end in our song of sending something about these very things we're talking about. Jesus will sing, Thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love. Thou art. So what are you dealing with today? What are your needs What are your concerns? What are you anxious about? What is before you this week that you find you really don't want to face? May I just tell you, Jesus is as ready and willing to help you today as he was the centurion who came to him. So come with your needs to the throne of grace. You have a Savior. And not only do you have a Savior, but you have a Savior who is full of compassion. There's a second lesson. Take to heart Jesus' power on your behalf and be assured of his ability to help you. Not only his compassion and his willingness to help you, but his power and his ability to help you. To heal a person of of paralysis without even seeing him, but by only speaking a word, is to do something inconceivable. And yet that is what our Lord did. He commanded, and it was done. It makes us think about the very beginning of the Word of God, doesn't it? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And in Luke 1, we find, for nothing will be impossible with God. And in Ephesians 3, we find, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And in Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. And in 2 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I ask you again, what are you dealing with today? What is before you, perhaps this afternoon, or Tuesday morning, or Thursday? Your Savior is able to help you. This one who stilled the storm and healed the sick and gave sight to the blind and even raised the dead has the ability to do for you what you need. In fact, he is as ready and able to help you today as he was to help the centurion who came to him. So come with your needs and lean on him because we have a Savior. But not only do we have a Savior, we have a Savior who is full of power. But there's one more lesson. And it's very important, as were the other two. And it is this. Take to heart Jesus' warning of the eternal suffering in store for those who die apart from him and the eternal joy and peace in store for those who die in him. You know, I continually think that it seems that a lot of people who are unbelievers just think either there's nothing after death or when you die, you just automatically go to heaven. Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter how you've lived. Well, we know neither of those are true. We understand that if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, you have heaven to look forward to when you die. We understand that if you die apart from the Lord Jesus, you have the place of damnation, the place of condemnation. And that is where you will be. And Jesus says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we're talking about hell here, the literal place of hell. Weeping, not of, because of true sorrow for sin, not because of impending separation from loved ones, not because of being the object of unjust treatment of others, not because of loss or bereavement, but because of inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness and utter everlasting hopelessness. And may I just remind you that the Scripture would tell us that this is a place of eternal torment. And in that place, there will be no father or mother to say it will be all right because it won't be all right. 
and there will be no spouse to embrace you and encourage you with, we'll get through this, it will work out because it will not work out. Nor will there be further opportunity to apply to Jesus for his compassion and power because there is no such opportunity given after a person dies. Gnashing, grinding of teeth means excruciating pain and frenzied agony. And it will go on and on and on forever. In fact, in Revelation 14, we read, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night. I liked what the new prime minister of England said in her speech to the House of Commons regarding the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. She ended her speech with this, may she rest in peace and rise in glory. But those who die apart from Christ do not rest and they have no peace. They have no rest day or night. Some of us here had a dear friend who is also now with the Lord, who lived in the same town where our good friend Boo Ferris lived. This dear lady named Libba Dean was a strong believer, and she lived many years of her life in the long-term care facility attached to the hospital there in Cleveland, Mississippi. She had rheumatoid arthritis so terribly that eventually she had to have both legs amputated below the knee. But she served the Lord and loved him and was a great counselor to many of us. One day she told me about an experience that she was having. It seems that there was a woman right next door to her whom she said was so close to her that if the wall between their rooms had been taken away, their heads would be touching in their beds. And she said, for this woman never stopped screaming. She screamed constantly. The only time she stopped screaming was when they put the food in her mouth and she chewed it up and swallowed it. And as soon as she swallowed it, she started screaming again. And I said, but Libba, how in the world did you stand it? And she said, well, I'll tell you. I thought this is what hell is going to be like and I am so grateful I'm not going to have to go. And I suppose that is exactly what hell is going to be like. Because the Lord Jesus says it here. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I like what Kevin DeYoung has said. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you have no blood to atone for your sins. But we hear that statement and we think of what has been written. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, <clears throat> and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty 
stains. What a great blessing to know that our dear Savior took the punishment of everlasting hell, which we deserve upon himself, upon the cross, so that we who trust in him and believe in him and know him as our Lord and Savior might be exempt from it. I was out doing my morning walk yesterday, and I saw the neighbor behind us, and I said to him, how are you? And he answered in that way that's really the best answer of all. You've heard it. You probably say it sometimes. Better than I deserve. That's what he said to me. I said, that's the right answer. We all have it better than we deserve because what we deserve is to be cast into hell. And the Lord Jesus suffered it so that we would never have to face that. Oh, how great is his love. And if you have trusted in him, there's this great promise for you. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. Where is that place called hell? It is called outer distant darkness. But in this place where the people of God reside after they die, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. But in that place called hell, there is weeping, and it doesn't stop. But there will be no weeping in that place. And we read about that at the very beginning in our call to worship from Isaiah. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I want to close with this amazing illustration that I read many years ago. There was a man who apparently Whenever anybody said anything to him at all, he would respond with, well, it could have been worse. That's just what he always said. Well, did you go to the ball game last night? Yes, but it could have been worse. Did you see this TV show and how terrible that was? Yes, well, it could have been worse. Well, a friend of his just got so tired of hearing him say it could have been worse, he decided he would fix him. And so when he saw him the next time, he said, man, I want you to know, <clears throat> I dreamed about you last night. He said, well, it could have been worse. He said, but I dreamed that you died. He said, well, it could have been worse. But I dreamed that you died and went to hell. He said, it could have been worse. And the man said, how could it have been worse? He said, because it could have been true. Would that be true of you if you were to die tonight? There's nothing worse than hell. There's nothing worse. 
And there's nothing more wonderful than being with the Lord Jesus and seeing him face to face. I've thought this week of that wonderful hymn, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. May the Lord give us help to consider where we are this day and if we are not in the Savior to come to him and if we are, rejoice in him. Well, let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for such a Savior because we need him. We desperately need him. How thankful we are to know him. How thankful we are to be known by him. I would pray if there be any in this congregation this morning, no matter how old or how young, who do not know the Savior, who have not come to him, who are not trusting in him, to be their Savior and Lord and God, would you work in their hearts by your Spirit and cause them to see and to hear and to respond to his call to come to him. And I pray, Father, for those of us who have come, that we might be encouraged by his great compassion and that we might be encouraged by his great power, and that we might be encouraged by that which is to come for all of us who have put our faith and trust in him, and that is to be in that banqueting hall full of light with no weeping and no gnashing of teeth with our dear Savior and all those who have loved him and followed him in their lives. So bless us in these things, we do pray in Jesus' name, amen.